Well, hello everyone. How are you guys doing tonight? Uh, man, it's so cool to be together, uh, Door of Hope family. And uh, um, this is the first time I've been able to speak at the Northeast, Door of Hope Northeast since it was launched. So I'm grateful to be here tonight. Um, so here's what's going to happen this week. Uh, we were kind of praying about what to do for Easter. And, you know, I think that often these holidays can be so consuming with family and gatherings and, and holidays just almost are a guarantee in Western culture to actually lose immediately what the whole thing is that we're celebrating to begin with. In my heart behind uh, doing this seven nights of service is, well, first of all, I'm going on a four-month sabbatical starting Monday, so I thought I'd go out with a bang. Um, but mainly, I just, I love the idea of those old tent revivals where people would gather together, study the word together, worship together, night after night with an expectancy, uh, a holy expectancy that I'm going to meet with God. And my prayer for this week is that it would be a week that you come expectant to meet with God. Because we're going to be reflecting on the most profound passages. Uh, there are seven statements that Jesus Christ made from the cross of Calvary. And in those seven statements, each one brings um, a fatal blow, if you will, to one arena of our existence. And at the same time, it brings with it this incredible gift, each statement carrying within it a, a paradox. And Jesus essentially, from the cross, is explaining the gospel while he is actually fulfilling the gospel, working out the gospel, if you will. Seven words spoken, and each word comes to us today with such poignancy that, that, that I thought, what a powerful thing to reflect on each statement that Jesus makes over seven nights and then celebrate um, the culmination of everything he said, or shall I say it, the proof, <laughs> the thumb of approval upon everything he said by the resurrection which is what we will be celebrating on Sunday. But keep in mind, resurrection always insinuates death. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the seven words from the cross, um, I, can, you, can you think of what they are? So the first statement from the cross is, is Father, for, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two incredible things that Jesus is saying there. It's God's heart to forgive, and there are things that you and I need to have forgiven <laughs> that God is gracious and a forgiving God and we are guilty in need of forgiveness essentially what Jesus is saying ignorance is not innocence and God is love what a powerful thing the second statement he makes from the cross is hanging on each side of him on the right and the left is are two thieves and those two thieves like the crowd began their crucifixion experiences, they're dying, railing on Jesus as they're dying, which is really hard for me to get my head around. Uh, that's actually the word used, railed against him. Uh, but one, the thief on his right, recognizes there's something special about Jesus. There's no animosity, there's no, there's no anger. No, instead, there is... There is a calmness, a repose, and he sees in Jesus his only hope. And it's one of the most convicting passages around what is necessary to be saved because this guy does not have a robust understanding of the gospel. There's no sinner's prayer involved per se, but he is repentant. And he says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, amen. Today you're going to be with me. The power of that statement is one of the things that gives me the greatest encouragement having just lost my father who came to faith, but it was primitive, very primitive. My dad called God the big fella. So, but in that primitive faith, I'm reminded of the thief on the cross that the only fruit in that man's life was simply the word remember. Remember me. 
The third statement that Jesus made from the cross, in that, in that picture, if the, first, if the first word is a word of forgiveness, the second word is truly a picture of how unfair grace is. The third word is, is Jesus' word to his mother. Mary stands before the cross, and it is a powerful picture that reminds us that we as evangelicals or Protestants, as we become more uncomfortable with the word evangelical, let's just go with Christian, uh, have not done a great job at seeing the uniqueness of Mary. She was blessed amongst all women. Um, but what a, what a crummy blessing, huh? Hey, you're going to be the most blessed human on earth. You get to watch your son get tortured and die. That's every parent's dream for their child. The death of dreams becomes the birth of the ultimate provision for the son becomes her savior just like everyone else. And the home that she loses with her son, she now becomes that home for the Savior himself as he provides for her, takes time out of his anguish on the cross to say to John, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. And from that day forward, it says, John took Mary into his home. What a cool thing to have the mother of Jesus telling you stories. And yet John never disclosed those stories. You're like, but aren't there stories about Jesus' childhood? Not by anyone that knew Jesus. <laughs> then you have the powerful and mysterious statement that requires a very careful treading. Because it's, there's so much mystery. Um, and it's so shrouded in whatever it is that's happening. It shows it's the whole reason that the movie The Passion can never actually, or any movie for that matter, ever portray the significance of the crucifixion other than showing a man be tortured, which is not unique in human civilization. But it's the spiritual reality of what Jesus is experiencing to work out redemption for humanity and it, that brings Jesus after hours of darkness and silence the anguish cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, to me, is the death of solitude, or I should say the death of isolation. And it is truly the birth of intimacy, as intimacy is meant to be. The next statement, which is the most human of Jesus' statements, is just simply, I thirst. And in that word, we see truly the, the center of, uh, in the uniqueness of Jesus' uh, understanding of human suffering. Th this phrase, I thirst, think about it. He is the living word, the, the, the water, the well of life. If you come to me, I will give you water and you'll never thirst again. And yet here he is, the thirsty eternal river. What a powerful... It's hard for me to get my head around the one that brings satisfaction to all people. And yet in this moment where he sits in our place, there is no satisfaction for him. It truly is a picture even of the descriptions of hell where there is a continual thirst darkness and thirst and i like to say that i do not think it's going beyond the realm of scripture to say that jesus truly experienced hell for us separation thirst suffering isolation but that i thirst also becomes for us the means by which we know that there is truly satisfaction for us, even in the midst of suffering, that we can trust him because he understands our pain, and that this is not the end of the story. Next word, the sixth word is, it is finished. And it is finished is a word of absolute victory but it is finished also speaks of it is a final judgment, if you will, on sin. 
And it is the birth of new creation. Now, the challenging thing for us is we know that it may be finished, but for us here, it is not over yet. And in the victory tells us that it's not something we're working toward, but it's something we're working from. But it is finished is the final nail in the coffin of thinking that you have anything to add to what Jesus has already done for you. I have been deeply humbled the last few days in, in this shift in my role at Door of Hope um, and uh, just wrapping up a book. Um, I was way at this cabin praying. I, I'm actually reading for the first time in my life this book by a guy actually I was reluctant to read because I wasn't sure that he was orthodox and I got warned by people that never read him and I was surprised to find that it was actually incredibly orthodox and unbelievably moving as Thomas Merton's The Seeds of Contemplation. I was expecting it to be like your classic mystical, just give me a list of things that I'm supposed to do, you know, just pray more, fast more, do more things. But the whole book is an emphasis on how does the life of Christ come alive in us but through death to self. And he has a whole chapter that slayed me this week because he talks about the spiritual pride that comes, uh, the blindness that comes with spiritual pride when ministry is what you do, where your identity in Christ becomes based upon what people think of your preaching or what people think of your leading or what you've done or how many people you've served or how many homeless you fed. And, and he said, he goes, when that becomes your identity as a Christian, inevitably the only outcome for that is not finding the thing that you want and actually need, which is Christ himself, because it's still about you. And I was struck when I read that this week, I was like, Lord, I don't believe it's finished. I think I'm adding to what you do. I think that what I do matters in your kingdom, and it only matters when I let you do it through me. It is finished means I can trust him with my life. That everything that needs to be done has been done. What a powerful thing. The final word is a word that, man, our world needs more than anything right now. And our world needs to see it in the church more than anything right now. Which is a peaceful spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Man, does the world need peace. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which means it is a fatal blow to all of our restless activity and a call to the shalom that is actually available now. Not in the future, but now, because the shalom is Jesus himself, the victorious risen Christ now. So these seven words or what we're going to be reflecting on. And tonight we're just going to consider forgiveness. And I'm not going to keep you long because I want these to be kind of focused and concise so that you can reflect on um, just the question of, am I someone who understands that I'm guilty and that I'm forgiven? And when I understand that, the real litmus test to that question is, am I forgiving? <laughs> so so let, let's consider this. And when we look at this, this, this statement, it, it, it's found in Luke 23, verses 33 to 34. And it says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that all forgiveness is suffering. And it really is true because forgiveness in many ways, in our particular climate, a climate that is driven by hyper-victimization um, and, and, an, and a continual cry for equity and, and demands for justice. It's interesting to me that that justice has become more important to the church than mercy. And I think now more than ever does the church need to reflect what 
forgiveness actually is. The time has come, said Rene Girard in his beautiful book, Scapegoat. The time has come for us to forgive one another. If we wait any longer, there will, there will not be time enough. What a powerful statement. And I think that it is absolutely true. We need to remember that Jesus himself was the one who knew no sin, but was made sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he has accomplished something for us by taking our guilt into himself. He has accomplished something that is, that is so radical, so counterintuitive to the world in which we live, which is this, is that God's heart toward a sinful, rebellious world, world has always been a desire to forgive. And believe me, I know, as well as any of you do, how much we need to be forgiven. How much there is that we do that is a violation of who God is. If my standing before God is based upon my performance, I'm in so much trouble. This is one of the things that makes the cross such a powerful thing for us to continually come to. And this is why I say when you take the cross out of the gospel message, you literally drain Christianity of its blood because it's the only thing that puts every human being on the same playing field. Because there are only two categories of human beings in Jesus' economy. Evil people that accept his forgiveness and evil people that reject it. That's it. A saint is just an evil person that said yes. And it actually doesn't change the category of evil. Because Jesus said to his own disciples, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. He doesn't say those people out there that aren't following me who are evil know how to give good gifts. He said, no, you who are evil. You who have left all to follow me. Because for, for, for God... Evil is anything that is not him, not holy, I should say. It's not true. I wouldn't say that angelic beings are, are evil, but for, in, for humanity, evil is the rebellion of sin that plagues all of humanity. And when I define sin, I think it's really important for us to understand that sin is not the little things we do wrong. Sin at its root is just simply that that attitude that exalts ourselves to the throne of our hearts. What we want to get to is the heart of the heart. And the problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We need a new heart. The first words that fall from Jesus' lips as he hung in agony naked and beaten beyond recognition, not even the crowd's derision can silence the two-edged sword that's spoken here. Absolution and accusation. It is both the death of innocence and the birth of forgiveness. Here we find the God of yes, a revelation of His willingness through Jesus is an act of divine mercy to forgive and a sobering reminder that we have done so much that needs forgiveness. When I look at this word, I realize it's one that is dimly understood. I was sharing with the staff um, uh, one day after I, I was writing on this, writing this chapter, and I realized that forgiveness is, is not only is it a word that's not very well understood, it's, it's actually difficult to, to define and even more difficult to give or receive. Uh, it's a ghost, as I like to call it, of days gone by and holds very little bearing on the age in which we currently live. It's not that forgiveness is viewed with disdain or thought of with disdain. It's just not thought about at all. If I was to use the current vernacular, it's not a word that's trending. I mean, think about that. When I, I think about the ways that words come into collective consciousness. Forgiveness is one that, that I see used primarily um, as, as a way of describing what is out of reach. Think about it. In pop music, 
most common, common, commonly used to describe a longing to correct what is already over. In other words, too little, too late. In film and television, if the word is uttered, it comes, from, comes in the form of a frantic request that seems to guarantee its denial. The hero or anti-hero about to unleash vengeance on some sad sack who is about to expire, pathetically crying out, please forgive me. I'm sorry, forgive me. There are the passing scenes of the shady priest in the confessional box, offering the absolution of a God who is portrayed as not actually there. But you might even get the cringeworthy born-again character in the movie, whose zeal is unbearable and offensive. This is the industry's unwavering commitment to its two-dimensional presentation of Christianity, as I like to say, as a monolithic movement marked by sociopaths, unbearable prigs, prudes, and perverts, the great blight on the fields of progress. <laughs> Sadly, there isn't much out there for real forgiveness and Christians being portrayed honestly, being the mixture that we are, just like everybody else. But outside of, of pop culture's expression of forgiveness and even outside the communities of the faith, the most common place, I, I, I've racked my brain, and maybe if you guys have any other ideas about this, the most common place I can think of the use of the word forgiveness came from the exhausted lips of Darcy and I when our children were babies. Buddy, daddy forgives you, but don't take sister's choice. Hattie, I'm so sorry I scared you. Do you forgive Daddy? I remember one time in particular, I told Henry, I had the gift of chaos making, um, and still do. I told Henry when Darcy and Hattie was maybe like three, Henry was like six, I said, hey, you want to see, see something funny? And they got out of the car, and they, they walked in the grocery store, and when they came, came back to the front of the car, I honked the horn. And Darcy, being a, a HSP, highly sensitive person, immediately, like, just in all of her um, uh, pastor's wife um, power, just, like, gritted teeth. And, honey, I'm sorry, I have to say it. Just the middle finger, just, ah! <laughs> While Hattie collapsed into, like, a puddle of inconsolable tears. And... I, I will have to, I do have to say, um, I, I mean, I, I saw my own execution in Darcy's eyes in that moment. Um, but, I, and I'm so sorry, Darcy, I still feel bad that it still makes me smile. <laughs> but when I think about forgiveness, and, and of course, I got an, Hattie, I'm so sorry, Daddy didn't mean to scare you. Darcy, I'm so sorry, please don't hit me. Um, <laughs> But I can't think of a single time ever that Henry or Hattie ever asked Darcy and I for forgiveness. Well, it's the, hey, it's not a word that a toddler would use. The only time would be like if they got in trouble for something and you say, what do you say? And they say, I'm sorry. And they don't even really mean it. But they're... But, the thing is, is, is this is the thing that's been so powerful. It's one of the, the great joys of being able to tell a different story than my childhood and my upbringing. Is that when children have a safe home that is controlled by grace, forgiveness is the air they breathe. That's the thing. They never asked for forgiveness because they would never have thought that it wasn't available. They would never assumed that our love was for even a moment being withheld. They would never assume that. I keep looking down at Ian because Ian's going to be a dad soon. I cannot wait to see what kind of child the two of you produce. Um, <laughs> but it's going to be awesome. You're, you're going to end up with like triplet girls. I'm sorry, that's, I did not mean to prophetically speak that over you. <laughs> But I, when you think about that, when, when, when the household is ran by grace, it's not that our kids weren't corrected, it wasn't that they weren't disciplined, but they never for a second thought they weren't loved. They never felt unsafe. We come to God for forgiveness because we think God stops loving us. Our understanding of forgiveness is that love is contingent. 
But the gospel's understanding of forgiveness is it's something that is settled and done. It was always God's heart, and it was finalized with the death of Jesus. I wrote this. I said, we can teach our children what is right and wrong. We can help them understand sin and lovingly discipline them. But if grace rules the home, forgiveness becomes the air they breathe. Forgiveness like air cannot be explained to a child only experienced. As we, the parents, absorb the unfiltered emotions and the unpredictable behavior, the food on the floor, the diaper artwork, the bald spot on the dog, the permanent markers on the face, the tantrums, the fork in the outlet, the hitting, biting, scratching, they literally can be little beasts. I know there were times my wife and I, especially Darcy, who carried the bulk of this load, were exhausted, overwhelmed, even longed for a momentary respite provided by Mimi and Papa, but nothing could separate them from our love. Then or now, forgiveness was the fact, not the focus of the conversation in our home. Because for us, the yes of love was simultaneously the corrective no to the wrongs that could never threaten it as well as the covering that left guilt, shame, and fear suffocated and forgotten. I think this is the picture of the cross. As I, you know, it started off as I was just writing a silly little idea around forgiveness, and I realized it's the closest I can even get to a biblical truth, a biblical understanding of how powerful it is. T.F. Torrance once said that there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Jesus said, I only speak those things which the Father gives me to speak. And he would not have said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think the way that it's interpreted often, and it is a really unfortunate interpretation, and maybe I'm creating a straw man, maybe you've never thought this, but it almost seems like Jesus is asking the Father to not unleash the wrath that he so excitedly would like to unleash on a wicked and evil world. No. Let's not do damage to the Godhead. Yes, there are three persons, but there is one God. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the exact imprint, Scripture says. He is the final word of the Father. Everything he spoke is a direct representation, reflection of the Father's heart. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, it's because God is a forgiving God, a God of mercy, and that picture of God as a God of mercy is consistent from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Because what happens in the garden when our first parents fall? When they fall, the first thing that happens is that human beings play out the inevitable consequence of sin. They hide. They're ashamed. And they hide. Their union is broken along with their union with God and they become uncomfortable with themselves. They lose God, they lose each other, and they lose themselves. And they're the ones hiding and yet we're told that it was in the, in, in the middle of the day they heard God walking and it wasn't an angry dad clearing his mind before he's going to deal with rebellious children. It is God walking directly into sinful humanity. Right into the middle of it. Adam, where are you? And what is the outcome of sin? God is compassionate. When Moses said, show me your glory, God says, you can't see my glory and live. And, and he says, but here's the thing. Because you asked, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll let my glory pass. You're going to see my backside, which is really weird. It's a weird analogy, but because it's really awkward to look at anyone's backside while they're talking to you. Um, <laughs> but... It, it, but the, the, the picture is this, is God's holiness does not prevent God from revealing to Moses exactly who he is. And God himself proclaims who he is. And the first words out of his mouth is not, the Lord, the Lord, holy. The Lord, the Lord, just. No. He's compassionate. Abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger means he can hold his anger, unlike us. Which is why justice never really works out well for us. It, it's a bitter justice that actually does damage and creates more scapegoating. No, God's mercy is a, is, a, is a mercy that covers a multitude of sins. And that's not just something new that Jesus proclaimed. That's something that we see from cover to cover of Scripture. 
I, I think this is a, a powerful thing for us to understand because I think it's easy for us to kind of pit the father against the son, the vengeful, angry God and the, the gentle, meek son. But no, the whole Godhead is involved in the crucifixion. The roles are different. True. But the father's anguish over the suffering of the son could be no less true. And the unified decision to redeem humanity by God entering into human flesh and taking our brokenness into himself. Rene Girard actually believed that Jesus' words, Father, forgive um, them for they know not what they do, actually is a literal statement about the blindness of humanity and that they would not understand that Jesus indeed is the first legitimately innocent scapegoat unless the resurrection occurred. In other words, Jesus is praying for a vision that would come through the resurrection and would be the revelation that would be proclaimed, the gospel that saves so many, that God would open eyes to the forgiveness that has already been accomplished. People ask me the question of, do I believe that Jesus made possible forgiveness or Jesus actually obtained forgiveness for all? Or some believe that Jesus obtained forgiveness for some. What I would say is that Jesus, I'm, I am universal in my belief in the reach of God's forgiveness. That Jesus actually dealt with sin once and for all. Literally dealt with it. It, is, it died with him. Now, we see it wreaking havoc in our lives, but keep in mind, forgiven sin has an incredible ability to still wreak havoc in human lives. <laughs> There's no getting around that. Uh, so don't think that, that when I say forgiven means that we don't deal with sin. I'm just saying it's been forgiven. That's it. However, I believe that salvation has actually been obtained for all people, but not all people will say yes to God's yes. And there is the mystery. People will reject the gospel. But I think that the gospel in its reach, we're told in Hebrews that he is a one sin for all sacrifice for sin. That means what it means. And if it was dependent, if Jesus you know, made possible forgiveness, and that means that it's now our responsibility to make sure that we confess each sin, well, you're in deep trouble. Because I, I just found myself away at a cabin and I felt like the Lord revealed like, like 10 new sins, like significant sins that I'm not even aware of. Like, and they were all around serving him, around my own ego, around my fears of, what if the church falls apart while well, I'm on a sabbatical? The Lord's like, yeah, you're, you're dumb. Like, I love you so much. This is why I died for you. <laughs> church is fine because it's not about you. It's about me. And I've raised up faithful people. Because the church is a body, it's not a person. Oh, okay, sorry, Lord. Okay, that's good, that's new. <laughs> I think, I always say that playing with sin is like playing whack-a-mole. And, and it's, the one, one is dealt with, and then another one pops up, and then something you've had victory over for 10 years, all of a sudden rears its ugly head 10 years later, and you're like, what, I thought I dealt with this? That was something that plagued me in my 20s. How is this? That's the thing, that's why Luther said sin boldly but love the mercy of Jesus more. And what he meant by that is it's an, un, it's an unavoidable thing, Melanchthon. So quit worrying about what you might do wrong because you're going to do tons wrong. That's why it's good news that Jesus did everything right. Everything right. So cast your faith in him. Here's the thing that it's important for us to understand. Our guilt and his forgiveness. I want to just paint very clearly God's heart toward you is this love mercy forgiveness the problem is is that we often by our actions and by the ways that we live are in the business of saying no to his to a forgiveness that's already been accomplished 
We live as if we're not forgiven because we continue to live guilty. And the cross is, is about doing away with guilt and shame. Now, there are consequences. There should be conviction and brokenness when we fail. And we fail all the time. But that's why we confess it. We confess it not so that it can be forgiven. We confess it so that we can release what already has been forgiven. So that we can humble ourselves before God. Because our confession reminds us that we are still evil people who have been forgiven and are loved. Which is what makes us saints. Our confession keeps us coming to the cross again and again. To the one who loves us so much that he was willing to take our guilt into himself because he is not content to exist without you. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus, in these words, is presenting a rebellious world to a rebellious world, the heart of a father who loves us in spite of us. This is the most fundamentally transformative truth for me over anything else. Thomas Burton even said it really beautifully. He said, he said, you will not be able to love your neighbor until first you believe you are loved. And you can't say you love God and not love your neighbor. That's the catch. They can never be separated. That's my one critique of the Westminster Catechism's famous statement, the chief end of men is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I agree with that statement if what is meant by that statement is our enjoyment of God and our glorifying of God is actually played out by our love for one another. It's not about me and Jesus. Adam had Jesus all to himself or God all to himself in the garden before the one responsible for the fall, the woman. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> that is essentially what Adam... That is the essence of scapegoating right there, by the way. Because what, what happens when God shows up? What did Adam say? It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. And what did the woman say? It wasn't me. It was the serpent. And Satan was left with nowhere. Like, he had nothing. He just like, yeah, it was me. No, like, at least he was honest. <laughs> but, which is maybe why he gets to continue to rule the world for a short time. <laughs> um, but I, I think that this, this, this picture is, is a powerful one because we need to understand that God is a God who continues to love us in spite of us. In spite of these failures. The, 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 the fact is, is that our inability to love one another is, is actually a reflection that we don't truly believe that we're loved and we're not truly loving God. So Jesus himself said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He and that I can do nothing on my own. I only speak that which the Father has given me to speak. Therefore, we can trust these words. What Merton says in, in regards to our ability to know the love of God, it requires faith. And that faith is, is casting ourselves in dependence upon Him, trusting, trusting in His love for us. That's why I tell the church every single week that on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. Because nothing brings conviction like knowing that I'm loved even when I blow it. That actually wounds me more than anything. I just become rebellious when I think that if I fail, you know, I'm in I get time out now. Like, time out from God's love until I make it right. That's not how it works. The thing that has brought me to my knees more than anything else is God continuing to love me, continuing to bless me when I have made massive mistakes, when I have blundered and stumbled my way through ministry, and He continues to be gracious in spite of me. That is the time that I feel conviction over my sin. And the fact is, is that I can't come close to Jesus without having my sin continually revealed anyway. It's always the double bind. You can, <laughs> there is no escaping death. You can either die the painful death that brings isolation and separation from one another by refusing to believe that you're loved, by refusing to give love, and then you just die a thousand deaths, but it's death in the wrong direction. Or you can die the good death, which is dying to the lie 
that the world is consistently telling you that you're the most important thing in it and believe that Jesus is the most important thing who in turn wants to just give himself to you. To know his love and to give love, yes, is a death of sorts, but it's a good death as opposed to the deaths that we often die that bring so much pain. I want to just close with this idea because we have to understand that it is our responsibility to understand the beauty of confession and the need to be a forgiving people. I often say that confession is key to a church living out the crucified life in community. Because confession is the means by which we do not allow the world to place on us shame to push us into hiding for the mistakes we make because we don't need the world to make us feel bad because we're totally comfortable owning it for ourselves. We're a one giant 12-step program, okay? And we just come together because they're like, Christianity is for the weak, and we're like, yes and amen. It's for the sick, and you're like, yep, I'm pretty sick without the help of my family and God's presence in my life. You, you should be, you should, this is why Nietzsche hated Christianity because it was, it played on the weakness of human experience. And we say yes and amen to that. We have no problem with that. And you see, the world would actually be far more attracted to us as a community if we actually had the courage to admit just how much mixture is in us. Because when I say mixture, I mean that sin continues to be a problem. Even though it's forgiven, it still plays its, its, its language and reality out in our lives in a, in a vast multitude of ways. And it is the church's denial of sin's presence in our lives um, and Christians' denial of it that actually turns the world away because what they see is a powerless people pretending to be something that they themselves cannot touch but I believe when the church actually gets real about how broken we are when we can call our brother and say I'm struggling with lust will you pray for me man I when we admit to one another I, I, I haven't been honest about how I'm doing I, I, I want to be I want to come clean about this. It's the confession. It, it's it's a powerful um, it, it not only humbles us, but it actually it it takes down people's defenses. It's a vulnerability that Brene Brown has made millions of dollars on. OK, but it doesn't need to be something that someone the reason she makes millions of dollars on it is because vulnerability isn't. Christians love to read her books, but we still don't like to be vulnerable. I think we feel like we're vulnerable because we read the book. And all the guys are like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's fine. You don't need to. But you should confess. And we need to be real. We need to be honest. You know what I love about our staff right now is I've been pushing into this at the church for, for over two years really hard. And I feel like the staff is really modeling it right now. I, I, so much so, there was one day Ian sent a text about just, just being new to ministry and what he was feeling, and I was like, is he quitting right now? What's going on? And he's like, no, 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 I just was confessing, and I'm struggling. I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm still not used to confession yet. It's a beautiful thing. It was so beautiful. I was so moved by that, like just this honest, like, hey, guys, will you pray for me? I'm really struggling. It is amazing. We're so not used to honesty that immediately our minds just go to the worst. We're like, he's leaving. No, confession, the more we bring confession to the forefront of what we do, the less weird it is and the more liberty we will find. If we want to see holiness in the church, we got to get this right first. Confession, we're told this, that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead shall be saved. We're told to confess our sins to one another. We are told from Jesus' own lips that whatever you hear from me, 
Confess, speak from the mountaintops, from the rooftops. I like to say that sin, le- sin leaves the body, salvation enters the soul, and witness all is accomplished through confession. We are the church that brings the living word, and we do it with words. And one of the ways we reflect the reality of the forgiveness that is ours is by our willingness to say that we're not afraid to confess our sins because we know that they've been dealt with. And the way that we actually find freedom from them is by actually speaking them out instead of giving them power. Which brings me to this closing idea. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I think forgiveness often can feel impossible. And we have our reasons for why our identities often become wrapped up in the wrongs that we have believed or endured. The natural bent due to what is against nature, sin means bitterness and blame shifting. And I can think of no greater example of how important forgiveness is and how much regret I would be dealing with. I think my dad's death would be a million times more painful had I not pushed in as hard as possible to forgive him. For abandoning me to be able to say it wasn't okay like it really messed me up but to say but I'm not gonna stop loving you because of that because you're still here and as long as there's breath in your lungs and the Sun rises and the Sun sets there's the possibility of intimacy and I spent the last eight years trying to get to know my dad and you know what I found as I forgave him is that I kind of fell in love with him. Like, I really love my dad. And for me, my loss wasn't the unfinished business of an unforgiving heart and the broken relationship of a man who himself was abandoned. He's just playing out the cycles. And I had the ability, not because of any strength in me, the man of mixture that I am, but because Jesus is in me, working in spite of me, to confront the demons of my past and go sit with my father who drank two-fifths of vodka every single day and smoked three packs of cigarettes and didn't bathe for months on end and still see my dad, the man that I love. I call him the, you know, he's like the mystery man, even when he was young. And I love that man. And I was able to sit with him and look him in the eyes, literally look him in the eyes as he took his last breath and know that he knew I was with him and that we were okay. And because of that pursuit, not because of me, but I think because of my willingness to forgive and to tell him that he matters and that he is loved, opened him up to the gospel and a chaplain was able to share the gospel with him and my dad prayed to receive Christ. And primitive though it was, I am absolutely confident that I will be with him for eternity. An unforgiving heart, man, I can't think of what does more damage to the soul than unreconciled anger. Paul tells us specifically, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give a foothold to the devil which tells me that you want to come under spiritual oppression, stay mad. Because we don't have the ability to hold. You're like, what about righteous anger? It's not possible for you to hold that very long. (laughs) It will become sin. That's why it says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, which Paul's basically saying, if we're to take the word for what it says, that longer than a day is too long. I think, I think he's speaking, like, just work it out quick, is what he's saying. Jesus says, how many, when Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven. Which is a way of Jesus saying, forever. So what does that mean that we do with one another when we blow it? Well, forgiveness is painful. Because in a way, my dad was never going to apologize. <laughs> when I... When I told him, I'm like, Dad, like, he's like, I never chose to be without you boys. I would have had you boys in a moment. And I'm like, 
well, Dad, you chose to not be with us by choosing to sell and do cocaine. Like any good mother is not going to let their kids. And he's like, it would have been fun. <laughs> and I don't deny that it probably would have been more fun than the other option, which was kind of not so awesome stepdads, which I'm also learning to forgive. The fact is, is that, that my dad couldn't apologize. He said, he goes, I will not apologize for how I raised you. He said that to me just a couple years ago. And I said, you didn't raise me. <laughs> and he literally looked at me, he said, damn it, Josh, when I talk to you, I want to feel better, not worse. <laughs> and because I'd forgiven him, and bec because I am forgiven, it just bounced off me. I, just, I literally, I would give anything to hear him say that again right now. Because I love him. That's forgiveness. See, forgiveness isn't, oh, I've forgiven him. But if he came into your presence or she came into your presence, whoever that person is, and your hair on the back of your neck would stand up and your stomach would grow queasy, I didn't feel that way. You've not forgiven anyone. You can say you've forgiven someone, but it is until you can look at them and love them. That's when forgiveness has taken hold. Forgiveness needs to be the air we breathe, friends. Jesus, first words, so essential because it establishes everything else. Father, forgive them. In other words, Father, here I am to bring forth the forgiveness that is ours to give and we give it freely. His arms nailed to the cross wide open. Almost this reminder that his arms are open to us. Jesus calls us to the cross and says, you're guilty, but the good news is that's why I came. So if you're sick, remember the healthy don't need a doctor, it's the sick. A person that never sinned doesn't need forgiveness, but he wouldn't have said forgive them unless we all need forgiveness. We need forgiveness, but how we know that forgiveness has taken root is that we can confess our sins quickly and we can forgive one another just as quickly. Love. The grace of God, it is beautiful. Friends, love you guys. I really love you. And I'm grateful for this church. And I pray that we would continue to be a community of the cross and a community that truly walks in the freedom that comes from the forgiveness of Jesus. Let's pray.